As we continue our study in God's ten law words, his ten commandments, we come to the sixth commandment. Very short, but hear God's word. You shall not murder. Let us give thanks and praise for God's word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And Father in heaven, we want to echo the voice of the psalmist in loving your law and expressing praise and thanksgiving for your wise precepts. And so today we pray that you convict us and shape us and form us and conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, as we learn more and more what pleases you. We pray that you would bless our time of study in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, many historians have commented and noted that the 20th century was the bloodiest century of all time. And that's just looking at the numbers. If you look at the statistics, you cannot argue with that label. More people died as a result of war and genocide between 1900 and the year 2000 than all the wars of the previous four centuries combined. That's from 1900 to 2000, more people died than in the previous four centuries combined. Even when you adjust that number for world population, thinking perhaps, well, more people died because there were more people in the world. No, the percentage of the population killed in war in the 20th century was more than double that of the 19th century and four or five times as high as any century prior to that. 4% of the world population in the 20th century entered an early grave as a, as a direct result of warfare. Many, many more died as, uh, fr- from the collateral damages of war. Disease, starvation, exposure, lasting effects of chemical and biological warfare. There has never been a single year since the end of the 19th century where the world has not seen large-scale violence in some part of the globe. No one alive today remembers any extended period of peace on earth. And if you are born after the year 2001, you have never lived in a time of peace for this nation. Add to the warfare and add to the devastation of, of war Abortion on demand, euthanasia, famine, and disease caused by destabilization and tyrannical governments. And you clearly see that for a very long time, we have lived in a global culture of death. And what's curious about this is that this past century plus of destruction came so quickly after man had reportedly broken the shackles of his dark and distant superstitious past. It's it's right after the spirit of enlightenment and education had helped man rise above the ignorance of religion, where man doesn't need God anymore. Curious, isn't it, that, that just as soon as the West puts God out to pasture and lays claim to a higher morality, thinking, of course, that The Christian faith and God's law that it contains is barbaric and antiquated. Just as soon as we shed that barbaric and antiquated law, 
after that, after a, a, uh, embracing a post-Christian understanding of man's dignity and sanctity, it's after this that the West, the cradle of Christendom, is plunged into a, more than 100 years of death and bloodshed and takes the rest of the world down with it. Because as the church goes, so goes the world. As the baptized nations of the world have committed their great apostasy, they have squandered their inheritance. They have squandered their immense wealth and prosperity, their gifts of God, and they haven't lifted up the world, but they've carried the world down with them into darkness. Now, what do you expect when you reject the God of life? What do you expect? What do we think was going to happen when we rejected God's law? Only when we submit ourselves to God's order is there safety and peace. There is no safety. There is no peace. There is no tranquility outside of a society ordered by God's law. And the church, with Jesus as her king, must lead the way to that. The, the, church, the, the nations are not going to obey if the church doesn't. God's law and his gospel speak into the darkness and give hope. We've been studying the Ten Commandments the last several weeks, and today we come to the sixth law word where God forbids mankind from engaging in unjust violence. God prohibits men from injuring each other and from carelessly or viciously taking the lives of men and women made in the image of God. Now, you may look at the Sixth Commandment and say, okay, I got that one. You know, maybe some of the others I've been tempted to violate. Maybe some of the others I can give you specific examples of where I violated those commandments. But you shall not murder. I think I've got that one because I've never, I've never broken that. I've never killed anyone. But that's not all that it covers. The Sixth Commandment also requires us to faithfully defend the life of our brother, our neighbor, to love their lives and to love the lives of their little ones and to protect them not by oppressing them or hassling them, to not live in strife and contention with them. And not only should we live at peace with all men without stirring up trouble needlessly, but also as much as we can resist the wicked who injure and who kill, defend the fatherless and the widow and the helpless. And all of this and so much more is wrapped up in the short commandment, which is just one word in the original language. It's just one word in the Hebrew. And yet it's so full of application that Moses then goes on for chapters to unpack it and explain what this means. Now, some English Bibles translate uh, this commandment, you shall not kill, and some say you shall not murder. Which is it? And, and why does it matter? Does it matter if it's kill or, or if it's murder? Well, there's a different word in Hebrew for kill, and it's often translated slay in the old English Bible, slay or slew, the past tense. Um, Cain slew Abel, Moses slew the Egyptian. It's also used for killing in warfare or putting someone to death in capital punishment. It's a more general term, the word kill, um, that, and has no comment on the morality of the act. But the word used in the Sixth Commandment is a different term from the generic word for kill. The, the word used in the Sixth Commandment is a specific term that brings with it the connotation of guilt on the one uh, committing the act. Killing without just cause, killing with malice of forethought, killing uh, with the intention of, of taking someone's life out of hatred. So it does matter whether this commandment is thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. 
Because it says thou shalt not murder. There's a distinction. The, 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 the distinction between killing and murdering matters because the commandment is not you shall not kill anything or anyone ever. That's not the commandment. God, in fact, authorizes self-defense. God authorizes just war, which is just national self-defense, self-defense of your people. God authorizes capital punishment, which is the defense of the innocent. In, in fact, God not only authorizes the taking of lives in uh, certain situations, but God requires it. It's, it's mandatory. The state must not allow the murderer to live. The state must protect its people against its enemies. God requires the life of the one who breaks his law in extreme fashion, and those who threaten the lives of the innocent forfeit their lives. And all of this is taken up in the sixth commandment. So we turn a corner today in our study of the Ten Commandments. So far in studying the first five commandments, the first five law words, we've been dealing with vertical relationships, relationships between us and God and the authorities that God has put in place. So uh, the first three commandments, Yahweh forbids three different kinds of idolatry, covenantal idolatry, liturgical idolatry, and practical idolatry. And then the fourth commandment, he gives us the Sabbath, which we're required to pass on to those under us, we are to give rest to anyone, uh, anywhere, those who are under our care. And then he tells us to glorify and honor those over us, obey and honor all lawful authorities, especially mother and father. Obedience to lawful authority is obedience to God. So the first five laws all deal with our relationship to God and the structures, the hierarchy that he has put in place in the world in order to uh, uh, put structure into the world vertically. So that's the first five commandments. And then now we turn to the second five laws, which all deal with horizontal relationships, how we are to treat others as creatures made in the image of God. So we've been considering our love for God, and now we consider our love for our neighbor. And particularly today, we hear God's requirement that we de demonstrate love for our neighbor by protecting his life. God requires justice to be done in order to protect the life of our neighbor. Now, this is not in, in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. This is not the first time Yahweh has had anything to say about the taking of innocent life, all the way back with Cain, right? God expressed his hatred for murder. And then after the flood, God gives Noah the authority to carry out justice against the murderer. Since God has already established what he thinks of murder, what new information do we have here with Moses? Well, in giving the law to Israel, now Yahweh is providing the foundation of this new holy nation that he is instituting. Up until this point, up until Mount Sinai, God's people have been under a patriarchal system. They were a family who uh, dealt with things a certain way. They were a tribe. And they were under the authority, they were under the influence of other nations, most recently Egypt. But now at Mount Sinai, they be, they're being constituted as their own nation. They are the ones in charge of setting up courts and making decisions. And very quickly, as they, as they move into this new phase of their history, as a kingdom, as a, as a nation, as a country, they're going to find that these matters of life and death and the judgment surrounding life and death, it's all very complicated. It's all very heavy. It's all very grave. See, we know what happens if someone lies in wait 
with malice and takes the life of another and deliberately attacks them and kills them. We know what happens. God told Noah what is supposed to happen in that case. But what is the punishment or what is the procedure if someone dies at your hand unintentionally? What if you're fighting with someone or wrestling with somebody and you don't mean to harm them, but they end up dying as a result of the, of the combat? What if they die in the course of normal business on your property? They fall in a pit or an animal, uh, one of your animals uh, hurts them. Are you accountable? When are you accountable? Are you responsible? In all of these cases, what is the restitution to be and what is the, what is the punishment? And God's law covers all of these scenarios and it covers all of these uh, different situations and applies God's law and his justice and his wisdom to each one of those. So the best way I know to give you a sense of what God has to say about this commandment is to walk through and just pick out a few of those ordinances. We can't look at them all. Uh, and, and I hope that I just whet your appetite so that you can go and look and read Deuteronomy 19 to 22 and Exodus 21 and places where uh, God has spoken to these various situations. But we're going to read just a few of them and, and draw some conclusions from them and applications uh, from, from them today. So if you're following along in your Bible, after, uh, after the Ten Commandments, very quickly after that, we start getting some commentary on the Sixth Commandment in chapter 21. Uh, around verse 12, we read this, verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. If you strike a man so that he dies, you surely shall be put to death. It's often assumed that in order for us to be consistent in defending the lives of the unborn, that we must also oppose capital punishment because it's assumed that one is just as bad as the other. If you're going to take one life, well, um, that's, that's just as bad as taking another. But we need to think through this clearly because that's not a biblically defensible position. I oppose the destruction of innocent children because of the Sixth Commandment. I also am in favor of the execution of guilty murderers because of the Sixth Commandment. And it's both these positions are entirely consistent because they conform to God's law. As I said a moment ago, after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, God told Noah, this is pre-law, this is pre-Sinai, God told Noah that he requires the life of the murderer. This is what God told Noah. He said, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And here's, here's, the, uh, here's the thrust. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So one of the very first ordinances God gives to Noah after the flood is you cannot tolerate violence in the land. You cannot tolerate the shedding of innocent blood. You must execute the murderer. There are crimes for which men must be put to death. And so ever since Noah, God has not merely suggested capital punishment for murderers. He, God is not just saying, you know what, it's kind of a good idea. Maybe think of it, you know, write it down, talk about it. God says, I require it. God demands the life of the murderer. If you take another person's life without just cause, not in self-defense, if you take another person's life without just cause, you forfeit your own. God has given the sword to the state for this purpose, to defend the innocent and to punish the wicked. And God's law contains 18 capital offenses for which 
for which uh, uh, capital punishment is required. Now, of course, we, we think of this and how weighty and how grave and how complicated these issues are. And we think, oh, human judgment is so faulty and we're not wise and we're sinful. Absolutely. <laughs> we want true justice in the courts. We want a very high bar of evidence when it comes to the execution of murderers. We pray for honesty and for wisdom and for justice to be done at every level. But when it all comes down to it, we still must be willing to do what is necessary for the suppression of violence or we invite oppression and violence. Often the death penalty is opposed out of compassion for the guilty. But what about compassion for his victims? What about compassion on the rest of society who is punished when we allow murderers to live, thus making murder more of a, an attractive, less devastating option? You know, the thought might be, if, if I do this thing, if I kill a clerk at a gas station, I might get away with it. Or if I get caught, I might only get 20 years. I might get out early. I might be paroled. You see... And, and now violence and bloodshed populates the land. Obedience to God's law means not only obeying it ourselves and enforcing it in our own life through self-discipline and self-government, but also working to see that it's enforced in society by the state. God has given the sword to the state. He's not given it to the church. We don't wield the sword. God has not given the sword to the family. The family doesn't have the sword. But he's given it to the state for this purpose, and the state that does not wield the sword in this way is not protecting the innocent. The state's giving life, all right, but it's giving life to evil. A nation that follows God's law restrains violence and protects the innocent. Immediately after that law that I just read, or that, um, that, that code um, in, uh, in Exodus 21, we get a little... We get a little wrinkle to that. So verse 12 says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Now we begin to introduce layers of complexity into the subject. If you hate someone and rise up and intentionally kill them, there is no question about what needs to happen to you. But if you don't plot, if you don't meta premeditate murder, but you're involved in some kind of accident where someone loses their life, two things God says. First of all, God says it wasn't an accident. In God's created order, there are no accidents. He says, God delivered them into your hand. Uh, so it's not an accident, ultimately. And then he says, on top of that, if, if it wasn't premeditated and something terrible happens, I will give you a place to go. This is the first hint of those cities of refuge that God sets up all over the land when they, when they get into the land of Canaan. This system is going to allow time for a case to be heard, for witnesses to be consulted, for guilt to be measured. So if you're working out in your yard with your neighbor swinging an ax, and this is an example that's actually given later in God's law. If you're swinging your ax and the ax head flies off and strikes him in the head so that he dies, who's responsible for his death? Well, has it flown off before and you failed to fix it? Should your neighbor have given you a little bit more room and watched where he was stepping or standing? Maybe he shouldn't have been standing so close. Maybe that's something that we can determine. Was it just one of those things that happened in God's providence that really doesn't have an explanation? Everybody was being so careful and so cautious, and yet something bad still happened, as, as happens. God's law recognizes that it's not always cut and dried with simple answers. 
The cities of refuge gave someone convicted of a crime a safe place to go and time to work out his defense and receive a fair hearing. Once again, God's law recognizes that these are complicated matters, these are grave matters, but God instituted human authority to work it all out. And then in verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. If it turns out that it was an elaborate plot to make it look like an accident, but in fact we find out it was actually on purpose, then you're guilty of murder and you lose your life. This reveals what God thinks of murderers. Incarceration is not an option. Attempted rehabilitation is not an option. The murderer forfeits his life. You send him to God and God sorts out his eternal destiny. There are some things that can only be uh, appealed and sent on, uh, referred to God's heavenly courts and God's law recognizes that. And then verse 22, this is a little bit further down. Um, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You see this thing often in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy where uh, you'll get a small specific example that bears out larger implications. So one of my favorites that keeps coming up over and over in God's law is don't boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Well, who would ever do that? Who would think of that? But why does God repeat it? Well, there's an application there. Don't use something that's intended for life to cause harm. Um, don't, don't be cruel. There's a sort of cruelty there that has all kinds of other applications, a prohibition against cruelty that has other applications. So here we have a specific example in Exodus 21 of two men who are fighting who accidentally hurt a woman with child so that she goes into labor and delivers the child prematurely. Well, if any harm comes to the child, the men are guilty. Even if it was an accident, if the child dies, the men are to be punished by death. This specific example has larger implications. If this is the penalty for accidental harm or death coming to an unborn child, then obviously deliberately harming the unborn child is absolutely forbidden. This law strongly protects pregnant women and their children, and this is again all under the heading of the Sixth Commandment. Uh, I, I'm not going to read all these. Verse 28 through 36 is a list of animal control laws. So if you have an ox who's known to gore people and you let your wild ox go around sticking people with his horns and somebody dies, you're accountable for that. You've got you've to put the animal to death. You can't eat the meat. You don't benefit in any way. Animals that are dangerous to humans aren't allowed to live. So if you have a big dog that's known to... Um, to, to be aggressive, or, or maybe you have a pet python, or you're keeping a pet grizzly bear in your backyard, or a pet lion, you are responsible for what the animal does. God holds you liable, and God God's commandments take into account a, a measure of responsibility that you have over the life of your neighbor. Of course, you can't control everything all the time, but these things have to be measured out and meted out. Verse 22, I'm sorry, chapter 22, um, the first few verses. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. 
If the son has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he will be sold for his theft. Someone breaking into your property, somebody breaking into your home with the intent to steal something at night forfeits his life. If you physically assault him to protect your family or your property and he dies, you're not guilty of murder, God's law says. Now, why at night? There's a distinction there made about night. Well, there's no way to tell at night what somebody's intentions are or even who it is if he comes to you at night. If he's holding a weapon or not, you don't know. If you catch somebody during the day, God's law says, it's easier to identify them. It's easier to see what they're up to. And so if they're just there and you see that they're just taking something, um, well, deadly force is prohibited. But you can detain them and you are due restitution. In God's law, however, self-defense is one means to restrain evil. So we get all this instruction, we get all this, um, th this development on the law, and, and, and this all comes immediately after the law is given. We get the law in Exodus 20, and then we get in 21 and 22, development on the law, the sixth commandment. And then 40 years later, when Moses is preaching to the generation that's about to enter the promised land, he goes back over the 10 commandments and he explains them some more. And these sermons make up the book of Deuteronomy. And the exposition of the sixth commandment is in Deuteronomy 19 through 22. Now, um, we're not going to read uh, out loud Deuteronomy 19 through 22. I give it to you and I commend it to you for your reflection um, as, as we study this together. Ex um, Deuteronomy 19 covers how these cities of refuge are supposed to work. If you've killed someone accidentally, something bad happened outside of your control, you didn't hate the person, it wasn't premeditated, you get to a city of refuge as fast as you can in order to wait for the elders of the city to, to work out a trial. If it was premeditated, you lose your life. If it was accidental, you spend the rest of your life in the city of refuge or at least until the high priest dies, which is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. Once our high priest dies, uh, the sins uh, are, are washed away and we have freedom and liberty. But here God makes the distinction between different kinds of sin with these cities of refuge. There's high-handed, premeditated sin. There's the kind of sin where you say, I know this is wrong. I know God hates it. I know God forbids it. There's no question in my mind that this is something God judges. And I'm going to do it anyway. There's, there's that species of sin. Maybe I'll get away with it. Maybe I'll repent. But I'm doing it no matter what. God treats that kind of sin differently from sins of inadvertency. Sins that we have a hand in sins that we're responsible for committing, but someone else is responsible too. Someone comes into your yard and falls into a pit that you dug. Maybe you should have watched, uh, maybe he should have watched where he was going, but you should have protected him. There are things you, you could have done as well. So this also takes into account sins where we're being misled or where people are following leaders who are manipulating them into sinning. The whole system of the cities of refuge makes these various distinctions. That's in Deuteronomy 19. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we get some laws guiding warfare. Under the sixth commandment, there are rules for war. There is a righteous way to fight a war, just as there is a righteous way to defend your home and a righteous way to defend your property and the innocent people in your home. Nations are expected to defend themselves and their countrymen. But when God's people go to war, they don't go to scorch the earth and turn enemy territories into a parking lot. Yahweh gave specific instructions for even the Canaanites and how they were to be removed from the land. And that warfare had limits. And those Canaanites who left their idols, notably Rahab's family and the Gibeonites, they were spared. They didn't turn Canaan into a parking lot. God requires his people 
to fight, to defend themselves. He requires his people to protect good things, but he requires us as we fight to fight a certain way. We do not fight like the pagans do. God sets boundaries on what we can and can't do in warfare. And Christian nations, since the time of St. Augustine, knew this. They understood that there are things you just don't do in war. War is not a free-for-all. You don't purposely attack non-combatants. You don't take advantage of women and children. The purpose of war in just warfare, the purpose of war is to restore peace. And you only do what is necessary to restore peace. All this is in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And Christian nations up until the middle of the 19th century understood these things. But uh, once the Enlightenment came, once we were too smart for God's law, once we thought God's law was barbaric, we invented a fresh hell and a fresh barbarism of ourselves through the middle of the 19th century through today. We reject God's law and then we get this century of bloodshed. It's often assumed that all's fair in war, all bets are off, and our survival depends on doing whatever it takes to win. No. Our survival depends on doing what God says. The nations that keep God's law are going to be protected by God. He will fight their wars for them. God does not tell his people, do whatever it takes to win a war. As we read in the Proverbs, if a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. So our submission to God and his law creates a peaceful environment. And so just one example of this in, in uh, chapter 20, and I'm just going to cherry pick a couple of these, and, and honestly, I'm going to bring this in for a landing soon. Uh, chapter 20, verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and they open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Offer peace first. Peace is always preferable to war. Peace is the goal, not perpetual warfare that destabilizes nations and economies and always giving rise to newer and bigger and more awful threats. You offer peace, and if the terms of peace are accepted, you don't fight. If your overtures of peace are turned away, God's law then says you must act in defense. But you don't kill women and children, only combatants. And then further down... God says, don't make war on the land. Verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it's subdued. Now, that might sound just like a really specific piece of uh, trivia, and, and why in the world are you spending time on this? this is, again, all of this is under the heading of the Sixth Commandment. And this is, addresses a very specific facet that's so critical of, of Sixth Commandment keeping, uh, nationally and personally, to live gently with the world, to live gently in the environment. So when the war is over, and we expect it to be over, we want there to be trees to feed the people. It takes years for fruit trees to mature. If you cut down the fruit trees, if you cut down the fruit trees, you cut down the nation for 10 or 15 years. Once again, we're arguing from a specific example to a general principle. So if God's people in warfare weren't allowed to cut down fruit trees, what does that say about other ways of making war on the land? 
chemical warfare, biological warfare, nuclear warfare. You can't do it. Moreover, if you don't cut down, if you can't cut down the fruit trees, what about the fruitful people? You don't make war on civilians who are the faithful, fruitful laborers, farmers, workers. You make war on the warmongers, not the fruitful trees, the fruitful people of the nation. And then finally, in chapter 22, there's another interesting note. This is another specific example that you reason out to a general uh, principle. Uh, chapter 22, verse 6. Let this marinate. Let this soak. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with a mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Now, once again, that's just the kind of thing you just think about. What is, what is God doing there? What is he saying? It says, once again, that we're to be careful with the world. We're not to be violent or destructive with the earth. If this is true of birds, then it's also true of people. Remember, when Jesus repeated the sixth commandment, he said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And then in 1 John, we read, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you cultivate hatred in your heart, if you cultivate violence in your heart, the Bible says you are giving space to the same sin as Cain who killed his brother. You may not ever think that you would actually go through with murder, but it's actually a very short trip from burning, seething hatred to murder. Obedience to the sixth commandment requires us to live at peace and be gentle with other people made in the image of God. Not to be these powder kegs of hate and anxiety and frustration ready to explode in anger, to live in a hateful way with the world. And if you don't deal with your bitterness, God's word says, you just might kill somebody. I'm not exaggerating. If you live as a hateful person, you just might kill somebody. You might think, no, that's not going to happen. Folks, I've known people, and not the people you would expect to do this, but there are people I have known who have committed murder, who didn't control their hate. They didn't control their bitterness. They didn't control their anger. And sin waited at the door for them, just as it did with Cain. And they gave into it, and they committed heinous acts of violence against other people. Now, I've just skimmed over these things, hopefully giving you a sense, a taste of some things you might want to study in more depth. But you and I need to know what God's word says about these things. And it's, it's, it's important for us to know because we're always tempted to think that we're more compassionate, we're more caring, we're more just than God. I mean, you often hear about the sanctity of life and that we're to have this holy reverence and awe for life as if, as if death is the ultimate and final evil. We think life is always better than death, even when we're talking about the wicked. But you see, submitting to God and submitting to God's law, we see that life isn't sacred. We don't have an open, unqualified reverence for life. We have a reverence for God. We have a reverence for God's law. God's law is sacred. God is sacred. Life that is submitted to his law is a treasure. But life that is opposed to his law is forfeit. 
All obedience to God's law is based on uncompromising obedience to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So God forbids us to put anything or anyone above God. We don't, play, we, we don't place life above God or God's law. Not our life, not anyone else's life. To, to think that death is the ultimate evil, to think that we can't defend ourselves or that the state should never take anyone's life in any situation or to think that we can't defend ourselves against our enemies nationally, that's not compatible with God's law. When the state uses the sword in a righteous way and when men defend themselves in a righteous way, there is a restraint on sin, and a protection of the innocent. If you don't restrain wickedness, and you flip that around, you end up protecting the wicked and exposing the innocent to violence. The state that refuses to use the sword to punish the wicked, the state that refuses to use the sword to protect the lives of the innocent, will invariably turn and use that sword against the innocent. The state still has a sword, going to use it against somebody. And if it doesn't use it to protect the innocent, it will use it against the innocent. And that happens over and over and over throughout history. The sixth commandment, in summary, requires us to be our brother's keeper. What does that mean? To keep means to guard. Adam was given the garden to guard it, to dress it, and keep it, right? To keep it, to protect it. And his wife was in that garden. He was to guard her and dress her and keep her. He failed. Why? Why did he fail? Because he was permissive with the serpent and dismissive of his wife. He was permissive with the wicked and dismissive of the one he was called to protect. And since then, we have always struggled with the same two sins. We give way too much leeway to the violent and way too little protection for the innocent. And so we've had a century and a half or almost two centuries of absolute terror and bloodshed. We look to Jesus. Jesus is his brother's keeper. Jesus is the defender of his bride. You look at Revelation, he's got a sword. He defends his bride, the church. And he is the fierce, he is the fierce opponent of the serpent. He is the fierce opponent of the wicked. So much that he even gives his own life for his bride. And it's only by following the example of Jesus that we are ever going to have peace by protecting the lives of the innocent and defending the innocent and by punishing the guilty. And this we will only do by God's grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you for this grace to rest on our land, our communities, our society in the Western world and across the world. We pray that we would rise up as people who defend the innocent and punish the guilty as you have prescribed, as you have commanded. You have commanded that there be no violence and no bloodshed unjustly on the earth. And we have failed. We have permitted it. We've allowed it. We've covered for it. We've excused it. And so we deserve it. So, Father, change the hearts of our people. Change the hearts of your church. Change the hearts of all leaders, all magistrates, to love life and the lives of the innocent and do this by defending them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.